0: New Testament reading is from the book of John, chapter 4. We're going to begin at verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Chapter one, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven.
1: Amen. Amen. We're launching into the, one, of the, one of the classic texts today on the uh, doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. So uh, I hope you're with me today for the long haul and uh, will not leave me mentally until we finish this. This is, this is a crucial text. Um, last time... We saw, uh, last time we were in Second Peter, uh, which was about, I guess, three weeks ago now because we had the Sunday cancellation because of weather, and then we had Sanctity of Life Sunday in that last Sunday. So uh, three weeks ago, we saw uh, the importance of constantly reminding God's people of basic truth. Teaching on a particular biblical subject is never a one-and-done proposition, Because we are so forgetful. We need to be constantly reminded of the truth of God's word. Uh, That's one of the, our forgetfulness is one of sin's effects on our mind. And the flesh battles against the spirit to try to keep us from learning God's truth. So we must continue to remind and stir God's people up by continuously, relentlessly, intentionally hammering home the truth of God as revealed in Holy Scripture. Today we come to a very key passage uh, in the Word of God that deals with the inspiration of Scripture, its source, its uh, origins, where it came from, and a key text for the Reformers in their protest against Rome over the issue of the supremacy of God's word over church tradition. Remember for the reformers it was sola scriptura. It was scripture alone. Scripture by itself is our ultimate and final authority for faith and practice. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church taught it was Scripture plus church tradition, plus rulings from the chair, rulings from councils and popes. So that was, a big, that was a big deal. That was a huge deal. In their book, Baptists and the Bible, L. Ross Bush and Tom J. Nettles wrote this, quote, The Reformers believed Scripture to be God's Word written. It was trusted, not doubted. It was studied, not ignored. It was taken as the final authority with regard to those matters on which it spoke or made affirmations. Starting from Scripture, one could find the true knowledge of reality, end quote. And Pastor John MacArthur writes, What the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, the text that we are now in, is foundational to the reformer's understanding of scripture and clearly indicates that in the bible believers have an accurate written revelation of god's truth so in this text peter reemphasizes the infallible source of god's truth and compares it to one of his most amazing life experiences. And this is interesting. We're going to find this interesting, I believe. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Ask for the Spirit to teach us and then dive in. Father, we thank you for another Sunday morning in your Word together. What a blessing. May we Each and every one of us who are believers, may we say, as Peter said on that Mount of Transfiguration roughly 2,000 years ago, may we say, as he said, it is good that we are here. Father, that's the cry of my heart for my church family, that every Sunday, every Sunday morning, we would leave here saying, it was good that we were here. So Father, speak to us from your word, not in an audible voice like on the mountain, but from the pages of your written word, which is more trustworthy than that experience. And give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace what you want to say to us today for our great good and your great glory. As we have sung today, oh Lord, we need you. We need you to teach us. We need you to grow us. We need you to sanctify us. We need you to transform us into a greater likeness of your Son. Please do that as a result of our time together today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's look first at the uh, at the testimony of Peter, beginning at verse 16. He, we, you've got the connecting word therefore which connects this text to the previous text. It's a link to what Peter has just st- said. And so what we're going to get here is, is a further elaboration or an unpacking or an explanation of why Peter is so intent on reminding God's people of Scripture. He's going to say I, I need to keep reminding you of this for this is from God this is not our own private interpretation. This is from God. This is God's Word. And he's also going to throw in there his personal experience with God incarnate on the Mount of Transfiguration. So uh, the, the connection of these uh, verses uh, uh, 16 uh, and through 18 and 19 through 21 is very, very interesting. And I hope you'll grasp what peter is telling us this morning under the inspiration of the holy spirit so in verse 16 beginning at verse 16 peter tells us that they were eyewitnesses of his glorious majesty at the transfiguration of god's son and peter is saying hey in verse 16 we didn't make this stuff up okay we're not following cleverly devised myths okay we're, we're not giving you myths or or fables or fairy tales we're not trying to trick you or fool you or or pull the wool over your eyes or deceive you or anything like that we me and my fellow apostles this is peter speaking we were actual eyewitnesses we saw this happen and he could go on with he, not only the man of transfiguration, but we saw the things that Jesus did. You know, uh, as as as, as for John says, as Peter's buddy John said in his first letter, we we touched the this Word of Life, this Word incarnate. We touched Him, we were with Him, we heard Him speak, we saw His works, we saw His miracles. And Peter is speaking specifically here of the miracle that they witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration. He calls it the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word coming there translates the familiar New Testament word parousia, which means appearing or arriving. And when used in the New Testament, it always refers to Christ's second coming. And then he says that he and the other apostles were, quote, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, the pronoun we here is referring to Peter, James, and John. Because in verse 18, he he elaborates on that by saying, we ourselves. So he's talking about a specific group of three apostles. That's important to note because later in the text when we see the pronoun we, it's talking about all believers. So we need to make that differentiation. So here in the beginning of the text, the we is Peter, James, and John. Peter is saying, on that mountain, we saw the very majesty, the very splendor, the grandeur, the magnificence of our Lord. We got a preview Of what it will be like when He returns and His glory will be on full display." In other words, these three guys got a preview of coming attractions. So, we want to go back to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and read the account that Peter is talking about. And remember, there's a natural connection here Because Mark is probably dictating for Peter. Most scholars believe that Mark was writing what Peter was instructing him to write. So there's a natural connection between the gospel of Mark and Peter's letter. So let's go back there to Mark chapter 9. Since Peter brought it up in this letter, let's go back and get... Uh, A few more details. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. And we'll read to verse 8. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. That's the we of verse 16. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I love that. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This mountain uh, is probably Mount Hermon, uh, roughly 9,000 feet above sea level and 11,000 feet above the Jordan Valley. As you know, mountains have been fairly significant in the history of God's people for this was a place often where God and, and man uniquely encountered one another examples of course the Ten Commandments the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount etc. We could go on um, so on this mountain Jesus calls his inner circle to him, Peter, James, and John, the three that were closest to Jesus. Luke tells us, if we go to Luke, he tells us that they're going up there to pray, sort of a, maybe a leadership prayer retreat, so to speak. Um, and sometimes big things happen when you pray, right? And so here we see an example of that. And Mark, in his brief Straightforward manner. Remember, Mark's the shortest of the Gospels. He spoke just, you know, bam, 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 rapid fire. Uh, One of the key words in Mark is the word immediately. You know, it was was fast-paced. It was the condensed version. And in his brief, straightforward manner, Mark just says, he was transfigured before them. Not much elaboration except for a comment on the radiance of his clothing. Uh, when when Mark says he was transfigured, the Greek there is metamorpho. You might recognize that the English transliteration of metamorphosis um, it carries the root meaning of to change, uh, a radical transformation. A possible illustration that comes immediately to our mind is the metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly. This verb only occurs four times in the Greek New Testament. Here in Mark 9 verse 2, in Matthew 17 verse 2, Matthew's account of the incident. Uh, in Romans 12 2, interesting, it's the result of us, it's used as the result of believers presenting our bodies as living sacrifices with the admonition to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed. Same word, to become like Jesus by the renewing of your mind. And then also in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul tells us when we behold the glory of the Lord, and how do we do that? By studying scripture, by hearing the word preached, uh, and hearing it read, uh, reading it ourselves, beholding the glory of the Lord. We are Metamorpho, we are transformed into his image. Same word, big difference. Jesus was immediately there on the mountain. Ours is a long, steady, sometimes painful process, right? But the same thing is happening. We are being transformed. We are being transfigured. And one day it will be complete when Jesus returns when we see him we will be as he is this preview that peter and james and john got that's going to be a reality for us on the last day so jesus was changed here for a brief time the human body of christ was transformed and the disciples saw him As he will be when he returns visibly in power and glory to consummate his kingdom. Again, this is a preview. Jesus is giving, or God is giving through his son Jesus, the disciples, this inner circle of three men, a preview of what is to come. Kent Hughes describes it like this in his commentary. For a brief moment. The veil of His humanity was lifted, and His true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory which was always in the depths of His being rose to the surface for that one time in His earthly life. Or put another way, He slipped back into eternity to His pre-human glory. It was a glance back and a look forward into His future glory." The Apostle John would later mention it in his gospel, saying in John 1.14, you're familiar with this, we have seen his glory, the, one in, the glory of the one and only Son in the word that became flesh. I think of the inspired words of the author of Hebrews as well, in Hebrews one verse three, which described Jesus as the radiance, the radiance of the glory of God. Luke tells us that the appearance of his face was altered. And Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. Who are we thinking about here? Well, maybe Moses, the first deliverer, who also went up on a mountain and returned with a radiant face after he received the Ten Commandments. Mark tells us as his clothes became pure white, quote, as no one on earth could bleach them. In other words, a whiteness unknown to human eyes. Let's consider a couple of key words here that Mark uses. Uh, the word radiant, still bow in the Greek, to glisten, to sparkle, dazzling, to reflect or shine brightly, to be brilliant. Uh, intensely white, not just white, okay, not just white, intensely white white. Intensely white. That's hard to imagine, right? Intensely white. Maximum light. Matthew says, white as light. Luke says, dazzling white. The great theologian R.C. Sproul says it like this, in viewing the transfigured clothes of Jesus, the disciples saw the purity of whiteness. Nothing was absorbed or reflected. The source of the light that radiated from Jesus' garments was not external. The sun in the sky did not produce the effect. The light source was Christ Himself. Inherent light. Not a reflection of something else, like the moon reflecting the sun. dazzling, inherent whiteness, maximum light. I don't know about you, but I think of Revelation 21, 23, where we're headed, the city we're headed to, if we're born again. If you're not born again, you're headed to somewhere much, much worse. But the good news to you today is, today's the day of Salvation. You can repent of your sin right now and confess Jesus as Lord and be heading to this city with the rest of us. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus. Jesus, the light of of our future home. The light of glory in Revelation 22 5 and night will be no more they will need no light of lamp or sun you don't need to pack any lamps for heaven don't need to take any flashlights don't need to flip on your phone they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light And they will reign forever and ever. That's where we're headed, beloved. That's where we're headed. If we're believing in Jesus. So the question here is, what's the Lord doing here? Ponder that for a minute. What what is Jesus doing here? I think he's giving them a brief picture, as I've already said, of what is to come. He's letting these three disciples know that... We're fixing to hit some rough waters, but everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. He's letting them know that glory will follow the suffering that He has called them to. On this earth, believers take up their cross. On the new earth, we get a crown. On this earth, we go through the continuous and sometimes painful process of sanctification. On the new earth, that process is done. It's over. We will be glorified with no more hardship, no more crying, no more pain, no more carrying of the cross, suffering now, glory Later. Challenging and heartbreaking and painful life now. Best life later. Not now. I'm looking at you, Joel. Not 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 Joel Spratland. Okay, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Tears now, eternal unbroken joy later. So, beloved church family, be encouraged. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. No matter what God calls you to go through, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. And the time there, on on a time clock, on a clock, is infinite. Whereas our time here is... Nothing compared to our time there, our duration of time there. So, ponder, ponder this. One day, we will see what Peter and James and John saw. We will see Jesus at, like that. If you are born again before you die. If you're not born again, you won't see anybody. After you die, the Bible describes hell as a place of darkness and aloneness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, unending darkness and torment. But again, there's the glorious gospel, good news. Today's the day of salvation. Okay, so then Moses and Elijah appear. appear. Let's, let's finish up our, our look back at this account here, at this experience that Peter is calling to mind in his second letter Moses and Elijah appear we won't for time's sake we won't go into all the possible reasons for their appearance except to say this in bringing Moses and Elijah and Jesus together here on this mountain we see the purposeful and continual and progressive revelation of God's story throughout redemptive history Moses and Elijah kind of link The Old Testament with the New. Redemptive history is not comprised of two stories. It's not comprised of the story of Israel, God's people who blew it, and then, oh, God maybe panicked for a semi-second, and then got to come up with a new plan. Okay, we'll come up with the church. No, it's one continual, unified story of redemption of God's people God's Old Testament people and His New Covenant people. And on this mountain, we see the key player in this story, namely Jesus, and two of His primary supporting characters. Moses, the deliverer from Egypt, who foreshadowed Jesus, our deliverer from our sin... And Elijah, the Old Testament prophet who spoke the word of the Lord, who also foreshadowed Jesus, who was the word of the Lord made flesh. So, these two important figures in the story of God's people and God's redemption, they appear. And Mark tells us they were talking with Jesus. Now, what were they talking with Jesus about? Well, Mark doesn't tell us because, remember, he's the speed version. But Luke tells us in his parallel account in Luke 9.31, he says, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, remember, in our study of 2 Peter, we've already looked at that word, departure, right? What does that mean? Death. Death. They spoke about his death. They were talking about the cross and Jesus' death. Let that sink in now. Moses and Elijah, Old Testament figures, important figures, but figures in God's history before the cross, are talking with Jesus about the cross. Somehow they knew about it. It seems that they understood the mission of Jesus. R.C. Sproul writes, This discussion stands in stark contrast to the one Jesus had only days earlier with the disciples. Moses and Elijah already understood what the disciples found so difficult to grasp. Remember Peter said, No way. No way you're dying. And Jesus said, Get behind me, you Satan character. Moses and Elijah understood what Peter didn't. So ponder with me for a moment. A little quick side pondering here. This encounter possibly tells us a lot about what happens in heaven. These two died in faith. Moses and Elijah died in faith. But knowing nothing about the cross that would secure their faith. Now they were talking to Jesus about it. Seemingly in an understanding way. The point, in heaven, we will understand things more fully. Isn't that what the old gospel song says? We'll understand it better by and by. The scripture says that now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, that's some heavy-duty pondering. You think about that. Things that you don't understand right now, if you belong to Jesus, one day you will. One day you will. Big question is, are you trusting? Are you trusting in the times when you don't understand, when you don't have the answers? Because we're not going to have all the answers here in this life, in this brief life. Look at what Peter says in verse 5, still in Mark 9. And Peter said to Jesus, don't you love him? Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Man, he wants to, like a good Baptist, he wants to start a building program. Don't you love him? But then the Holy Spirit tells us why he said that. He didn't know what to say. He was scared to death. He didn't know what to say. So let's just build some tents. Well, to wrap up this quick pondering of the transfiguration, I love what J.C. Ryle wrote. No synod on earth was ever more gloriously attended than this. No assembly was ever more illustrious. Here is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Heard God the Father's voice. You got God the Son being glorified. And you got God the Spirit, the cloud overshadowing them. So the whole Trinity is there. So here's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here are Moses and Elijah, the chief of the prophets. Here are Peter, James, and John, the chief of the apostles. What a gathering. What a gathering. But listen, beloved, listen, listen closely. A greater gathering is coming, the gathering of all the saints in glory, the glorious time when every believer We'll be with Christ and all his people in the coming kingdom. And we will say with one heart and one voice, with hearts overflowing with joy and thanksgiving, just like Peter said on that mountain, it is good, it is good that we are here. It's good that we are here. Quick side question. Do you say that when you come to church on Sunday? Because what is church? Well, it's a lot of things, but one thing it is, it's a preparation. It's a practice for the ultimate gathering. When every believer will be together around the glory of God, without our flashlights or lamps, we'll all be there. And the church is a practice for that. It's a foreshadowing of that. So what do you say? Do you you say like Peter, it's good, this is good that we are here. When you gather with your brothers and sisters to worship your Father in Heaven and to sing His praises and to pray to Him and to hear His Word read and preached and to commune with His Son and each other at this blessed table and to catch up with your brothers and sisters and to find out how they're doing and to see how Miriam's broken collarbone is doing and to be glad to see people that you haven't seen for a while because they've been ill or sick or whatever and you're glad to know that they're okay and you want to Catch up on how the the precious pregnant mothers are doing and how you're feeling and, and, and all that other stuff that comes with just being here together. Do you say from the depths of your heart and soul, it is good that we are here? It's good to be here. Because if you don't, if you don't, dear friend, there is something deficient about your heart and you need to deal with that Right now, today, before we come to this table. Now, it goes without saying that Peter's experience is amazing and glorious and wonderful and beyond compare. However, what he says next is, to me, even more amazing. And it's a basic teaching we can never forget. And it's this. We need to pay attention to the Word of God over our experience. We need to pay attention to the Word of God over our experience because we are possessors of His written revelation through the inspiration of God's Word. Let's look at these words in 19 to 21. Back in 2 Peter now. That that was fun in Mark for a little bit. Back in 2 Peter, Verse 19, and we have something more sure. More sure. I love the ESV translation. We're going to see some other translations in just a minute. Makes this a very challenging verse. We have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. In this verse, the we is every believer in Christ. So we've moved from the we being Peter, James, and John to the we being every believer. R.C. Sproul says the context of verse 19 is somewhat encumbered and difficult to unpack. And I say amen. I really wrestled with this text when I was looking at parallel translations and uh, alternate versions. We can see this in the different translations of this verse. ESV, we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than what? In what way? Well, we're going to talk about that. Lexham English Bible. And we possess as more reliable the prophetic word. More reliable than what? Well, I would say, based on the contrast we have here, more reliable than our experiences. Holman Christian Standards. So we have the prophetic word... Strongly confirmed, okay, strongly confirmed by what? Peter's experience? Does God's Word need our experience to confirm it? Hmm, New American Standard, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, more sure than what? Than our experiences, or is he saying, or is the translator saying, Do our experiences, is the prophetic word now more sure because of our experiences? I think not. New English translation. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. Amen. Amen. So you see the challenges that even the The translators, the scholars, people much, much smarter than me had with this Greek right here. John MacArthur is very helpful when he says this, some commentators contend the phrase indicates that the apostles' experiences validated the Scripture, that glimpsing Jesus' kingdom glory on the Mount of Transfiguration somehow confirmed the prophet's predictions concerning his second coming. That is a possible interpretation, but the phrase is literal rendering. We have a more sure prophetic word. That's the literal rendering. We have a more sure prophetic word. Recommends another interpretation. That is as reliable and helpful And I'm sure encouraging, as Peter's experience was, the prophetic word of Scripture is more sure. Beloved, this is so vital because you might go through your whole life as a Christian without what someone may call a mountaintop or supernatural experience does that mean your salvation is invalidated does that mean this is not real do we need an experience quote unquote to validate what God has said Now let's put this under the microscope note the immediate context of 19 to 21. It comes right after 16 through 18. That's a deep thought. You might need to stop and really let that sink in that that verse 19 comes after verse 18. But anyway, look at what Peter's doing here. In verse 18, Peter says, basically paraphrasing, "We heard an audible voice." Okay? "We heard" the audible Word of God, which I pray that we would all agree is not the norm, not the norm. It's not what we look for, it's not what we wait for now in this non-apostolic age. I'll just be honest with you, if I hear somebody talking about hearing an audible voice, I get very leery about their spiritual maturity. I want to encourage you, beloved, even be careful with the phrase, the Lord told me. Well, yet yeah, the Lord told us through the written Word, okay? We've got to be careful with the phraseology we, we use. The Bible never instructs us to wait for an, an audible voice of the Lord or a perceived audible voice of the Lord. I've had family members, rest their soul, I hope they're okay, tell me, the Lord told me to divorce your uncle. Really? Really? The Bible never instructs us to wait for an audible voice. He tells us, it tells us to pray for wisdom. A better phrase than the Lord told me Although, I'll admit, if you mean by that, I've gleaned from Scripture. Okay, but listen, a better phrase than the Lord told me might be, based on God's Word and prayer, I have decided to whatever. So, you take that, you ponder that, and let's try to be theological in our conversation and in our terminology and our wording but I I, kind of I interrupt I interrupted there what I was trying to get to in verse 18 Peter says we heard an audible voice okay Peter we got you and in the very next verse Peter contrasts the inaudible written word basically saying okay if you don't buy my personal testimony and my experience, guess what? We have the Scripture, which is more reliable than the experience I've just told you about. And it tells you in writing that Jesus is coming again. The fact that I got ai I'm speaking for Peter here, the fact that I got a preview of it The fact that I got a preview of that great event doesn't really matter. Yes, it was an amazing experience. God in his grace let me have that experience. But even if that had not have happened, even if that experience had not occurred, I would believe Jesus is coming again because Scripture says it. Are you with me? Do you hear what I'm saying? This is more reliable than your experience. Don't trust your experiences. Trust this. MacArthur continues, throughout redemptive history, God himself has repeatedly emphasized that his his inspired word is inerrant, infallible, and the all-sufficient source of truth which does not require human confirmation. And Paul Talgius writes in his book on counseling, because of its inspiration, Scripture, the prophetic word, is inerrant and therefore more reliable than even the most enthralling spiritual experience, even the one Peter had on the Mount of Transfiguration. Beloved, you've got something in your hand there on your lap or sitting in your chair next to you. You've got something more trustworthy than Peter's account of the transfiguration of Jesus. So listen to it. Listen to it. Instead of listening, well, let me put it this way. Listen listen to him... By listening to this. In these last days he has. He has spoken to us from this word. We must contend for it. Contend for the faith. Once delivered. To the saints. So to put verses 18 and 19 together. Paul is saying. James and John and I. Heard the audible voice of God on that mountain. But we all. All of us. All of us. This doesn't make us anything special. This doesn't put us in the spiritual elite. This doesn't make us, you know, real Christians, and you others are just second-class Christians because you haven't had this experience. No, 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 no. We all have His written Word, which is even more reliable than the audible Word. That's what you need to pay attention to. That's what Peter's saying. He is contrasting his experience in the, hearing the audible voice of God with the written voice of God and saying that the latter is more reliable. That's what we need to hear today. Why? Because we need its light. You live in a dark world, friend. You live in a dark world, dear brother and sister, and Scripture is a lamp shining in a dark place just like Peter says the psalmist it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and how long do we need to listen to it well Peter tells us until Jesus returns note note Peter's beautiful figurative language here until the day dawns until the day dawns what day that glorious last day the day of the coming of the king to get his bride the day when The morning star rises in your hearts when the morning star has full and total control of our hearts with no more rivals, no more battles in our heart, no more competitors, no more idols, and no more sinful flesh to battle. Who is this morning star? Listen to the words of Jesus. Written down for us by John in Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. It's Jesus. And then in verse 20, you've got to speed up here. You've got to listen faster, okay? you got to listen faster. Knowing this first of all, in verse 20, knowing this first of all, in the words, firstly, of prime Importance. People said this is prime importance. This is vital. Sorry that's at the end of the sermon when when we're starting to get drift away. But this is this is important. This is vital. You must know this. Scripture does not come from human beings. That no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. The Bible is not a human invention. No true message of God has ever been initiated from human interpretation. The Bible did not come from man. I love the New English translation. It, it, it tends, for me, at least for me, clarifies it when it says, No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. In other words, the prophets didn't make Scripture up from their own minds oh, I wonder what I should write right now. No, God was orchestrating it. God was carrying them along. As verse 21 says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Chuck Swindell writes, Peter clearly says that Scripture is not ultimately a result of human ideas or human will. Yes, Humans are clearly involved in the process, but the product, Holy Scripture, has a character and quality that surpasses what any mere human being could compose. Unlike all those cleverly devised tales that Peter mentioned earlier of the world's myths, the Word of God has come about from God's direct involvement. In verse 21, just to wrap it up real quick, Peter reiterates that truth again and then gives us the source of Scripture. Men spoke from God, not from their brain, from their mind, from their heart, from their emotion. No, from God, from God. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the Bible's key texts regarding the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. Another one is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The verb carried along here in 2 Peter is a present passive participle, meaning the subject is not acting passive, and it's continual, continually carried along. The picture is of, of the wind blowing a sailboat across the waters. The wind of God's Spirit carried the human riders along, not violating their human qualities and characteristics. In other words, the writers of Scripture did not become robots or mindless automatons mechanically dictating God's word from him. But God sovereignly oversaw. And directed their writing in a divine, supernatural, miraculous way. So that the words were his words in the original manuscripts. Henry Thiessen describes the doctrine of inspiration like this. The Holy Spirit so guided and superintended the writers of the sacred text, making use of their own unique personalities, that they wrote all that he wanted them to write without excess or error. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So let's close by just reminding ourselves of what our confession says in a couple of spots. In chapter 1, paragraph 1, the Holy Scripture is the all-sufficient, certain, and infallible rule or standard of the knowledge of faith, and obedience that constitutes salvation. Although the light of nature and God's works of creation and providence give such clear testimony to His goodness, wisdom, and power that men who spurn them are left inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient of themselves to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary for salvation." In other words, if you're a lost person here today and you you never had come in here, because of God's revealing himself in creation, you'd still be accountable. But now that you've been here, you're now doubly accountable. (laughs) Sorry, okay. Uh. In consequence, the merciful Lord from time to time in a variety of ways has revealed himself and made known his will to his church. And furthermore, in order to ensure The preservation and propagation of the truth and the establishment and comfort of the church against the corrupt nature of man and the malice of Satan and the world. He caused this revelation of himself and his will to be written down in all its fullness, which nothing's missing. God said everything he wanted to say in all its fullness. And as the manner in which God formally revealed his will has long ceased, the Holy Scripture becomes absolutely essential to men. Let me just pause right here before I read the last paragraph that I want to read and say thank you to will and Brooke for taking our youth group through the 1689 Confession of Faith. God bless you. I mean that is that is amazing. I, I don't know of there are probably not too many youth groups that do that. So praise the Lord for that. And young people, you take it in. You take it in. You take it to heart. And you're you're very blessed. You're very blessed. And then finally, paragraph four, and we'll end here. The Scripture is self-authenticating, self-authenticating. Its authority does not depend upon the testimony of any man or church. And we believe that's what Peter was saying. Yeah, I had a great experience. But... The Word of God didn't need that. Its authority does not depend upon the testimony of any man or church, but entirely upon God, its author, who is truth itself. It is to be received because it is the Word of God. Amen. Dear church family, may we always receive God's precious, inspired, and infallible Word with great joy and great thanksgiving. Because God has truly poured out his grace upon us in giving us this book. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the inspired word. And thank you for these words of Peter today. Help us to put our, our, our experiences in the right perspective in relation to your authoritative word. And we give you all the glory and thanks for that. We thank you now for our time at the table. May our communion with you and with, with, with each other be precious to us. And may we get up from this blessed table of grace saying, it was good. It was good that we were here. And that's our prayer, Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen.